If you want to make your presentation useful, give this a watch. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, time is short. Monday after vacation, always busy. Had two situations that came up. Cameron on the Coffee and Coaches conference call and then Christian um, on a quickie 15-minute console over the weekend, both working on presentations. And so literally we talked about physical structure of, of a presentation and how to make it useful, especially when you're, you're rather short on time and there's so much information that you want, to, you want to give people. And people get excited about my model and they want to talk about it, and that's fine. Um, but again, you don't want to try to overwhelm people, especially with new information, because uh, your brain's only going to be able to absorb so much. There is fatigue that is associated with learning, and we'll give credit to John Medina for some of these ideas in regards to, to how to structure a talk. Um, he's a molecular biologist that, um, that studies such things as learning. Um, if you want to read his book, Brain, Brain Rules, I believe, is, is the easier book to read. Um, anyway... So we're gonna cut right into this stuff so you'll get to see literally how we, we talked it through, how to create the structure, how much time to spend on a topic, how many topics per hour, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully you find this useful and um, we will see you guys tomorrow. Think about your audience, who you're talking to. And then what is most valuable for them to understand? So how much time do you have to talk to actually lay something out? Uh, I. I have I have probably about two hours or so, or a little over two. So okay, all right. So here's how you break this down. You get five things in each hour of lecture. Okay, that's it. Okay. Just so so now I've just limited your scope, right? Yeah. Because if you try to talk about more than five things in an hour, yeah. you've lost everyone. Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So each of those five things get nine minutes. Each of those five things is structured as follows. I'm going to make a point. I'm going to give you a series of examples. And then I'm going to make a point. And then you get one minute to transition between those five things. You just made my life much easier with that framework. All right. Well, but that so so this is so this is actually based on on fatigue. So you can pound somebody with one topic and then they need a recovery phase. So the one minute transition is so you can get them from one point to the next, right? All right. So and then you have so you leave yourself 10 minutes for questions. I've started writing my PowerPoint for uh, the Lunch and Learn, and I want to run some ideas by you and sure. see what would be the most beneficial uh, ideas that I can share with therapists who are more used to the traditional ways of, of rehab and uh, who've never heard these kinds of ideas or, or thought of these ideas before. Mm -hmm. So uh, the objectives I have right now listed the first objective would be to just review axial skeleton mechanics during respiration. So, how much, and one second, how much time do you have? I have uh, forty-five minutes uh, to an hour at the okay for the All lunch. Right. Go ahead, keep keep going on your object objectives. I just want to know how much time. You have. Yes, uh, my second one would be to discuss 
compression and expansion and the effects on mobility. So I would like to start with something very simple uh, as far as just like, you know, the bicep and the tricep compression expansion. And then I would like to go, uh, I, have a, I have a model where I have a rib cage from a transverse view and I have it cut in four and show compression and expansion along anterior and posterior and show them how that could cause rotations and changes in orientation. And, um, and from there, I would discuss the primary compensations and the archetypes. I, I, that's, and I would describe how the very wide archetype will tend to have more compression along the posterior you aspect. Need, you don't need to explain the archetypes to me. They're mine. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right. <laughs> hit, hit your bullet points. Hit okay. your bullet points so we can understand them. Yes. And then discuss table tests, the importance of reliability, their constraints, and how they can give you a bigger picture. So I would like to discuss that and, and have three or four good table tests that, um, that I can share with, with my team that they can use. Then discuss tips on how to cue for effective axial skeleton compression and expansion during respiration. So cueing techniques for, for the patients. And then the sixth objective would be choosing appropriate interventions and retesting. Okay, so you have, you have 45 minutes. I have uh, 45 minutes to an hour, yes. Okay, so do you have 45 minutes or do you have an hour? Uh, 50 minutes, let's say 15 minutes. Okay, so so you only have time to talk about four things. Four things. That's all you have time for. You're gonna try to jam all of that information into 45 minutes. That's a, that's a three and a half day, right? That's a three and a half day. Right. Yes. That's that's what you've created, right? Yes. There's no way, there's no way that you're gonna be able to express that information to any degree of usefulness. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to you're gonna to have to narrow your your approach here just a little bit to something that is going to be useful. Because you don't have time. Like I said, you don't have time to express anything in enough detail for anybody to walk away and go, wow, I really need to reconsider my thought process. Got it. You don't have time for that. So narrow, narrow it down to four. You have, you, have, you, have, you have time to talk about four things. Four things. Four things. That's it. And it's not, and it's not four concepts. You have four things that you'll be able to, to make use of in that time frame. Because number one, it's like you have to pay attention. Well, you have to appreciate people's attention span. They're not going to be able to walk away with, with an overwhelm of, of all this information. That's right. That's just not possible. It's just not possible. You have, to, you, have to, you have to think about how people process that information. So four topics. Roughly, roughly, if you want to leave time for questions, You've got about nine minutes per topic. Mm -hmm. Nine minutes. You're, make, you're going to make a point. You're going to give an example or two. And then you're going to restate your point in another way to make it memorable. 
And then you have to figure out a transition into the next point. So you have basically four little talks inside of your big talk. And then you leave time for questions. So what would be most impactful for the people that you work with to walk away with? That's the questions that you have to ask yourself when you're organizing this talk to make it useful. Like you can, you can vomit up anything that you want, right? I mean, you can throw terminologies and, and everything and, and, and it'll, it'll seem, you know, somewhat interesting, but mostly just confusion. And if you do that, it's no longer useful and people don't walk away with any interest whatsoever. So uh, you have to kind of decide, do I want to sound smart because I can repeat information mm -hmm. or do I want to give them something that might be useful in regards to some form of a model that might allow them an advantage in regards to their ability to treat people? I see. I see. So, so I appreciate your enthusiasm. Yes. But <laughs> you're just going to scare people away. That's right. And they're going to think you're, you're FOS. Mm -hmm. right. So what you would want to do is you want to create a context. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to treat a theoretical patient and you're going to say, somebody walks in with this. Because the way that most therapists will think is, okay, somebody walks in with a shoulder impingement diagnosis, and then they break out the, they go to the shoulder impingement protocol sheets, and they pull it out of the file, and then they say, here's what we do week one, and this is your homework, because everybody knows that all shoulder impingements are the same. That's right. Right? Okay. But point being is now you have a context, you have a framework to apply what you just expressed to me as the points that you want to make. And you say, well, if I see this and I, I have this test, I have this test and I have this test and I already see this limitation in range of motion, then I know it means this or this, right? So I have a compressive strategy. I have, I have increased muscle activity that prevents the expansion from occurring in these areas when I would breathe in and out, that creates a limitation in this motion. So I have just taken your bullet points and I have applied it to a specific context that now people are going to go, well, that's useful. That's good to know. Now I know why this test would be positive. So when I say shoulder impingement and, and somebody says, oh, you have a positive Hawkins Kennedy test. Mm -hmm. And you say, Here's why that test is positive. You see the difference? Rather than, see, because what you are going to do is you are going to take information that, that I give away and you're going to repeat it, right? And then that's not useful for anybody in, in, within a context. If you had three days to explain things and build, build out the model to some degree, it might be more useful under those circumstances, but you don't have enough time for that. So take a specific context that everybody's familiar with and then show them the difference. I see, I see. Does that make sense? 
Yes, that makes that makes more sense. So I could use a, a case study in a way. Use Correct. A study. Much more useful. Much more useful. For, yeah. Again, for yeah. this type of a situation, you know, you have a limited amount of time. Show them, show them their language, right? You speak their language, and then you move them towards what you want them to be interested in. And then the questions will come, and then the interest will grow, and then you become useful versus just trying to seem really smart. I like that idea. I do like that idea. So I can talk about the, the special test they use, for example, the Hawkins-Kennedy. Well, again, I'm, I'm just throwing out the shoulder thingy as, a, as, a, as an example. It could be anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what diagnosis that you're talking about. We could talk about sprained ankles, and you can say, you know, when you have swelling in the sinus tarsi, what you have now is a foot that is biased towards external rotation, which is why you see the electromechanical delay in the, in the, the, the lateral compartment of the lower leg. Right? I have eccentric orientation of musculature based on the position. This is why we can't reacquire dorsiflexion. Exactly. You see? And, and so, so, again, it's like, where do you, where do you want to, to take these people, right? And then use something that is familiar. Because if you, if you just speak in unfamiliarities, nobody cares. That's right. That's because right. They're, they're, going to make, they're going to learn something by analogy, right? They already have... Whether they think so or not, they have a model on their head. Yes. And anything that interferes with that creates cognitive dissonance. And they're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to, I, I, I'm not even going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. Speak their language first. Meet them where they are. Meet them at their story and then move them towards where you want to go. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Because then you're not interfering. It's like you don't want to create interference. You want you want to help them, right? That's why you're doing this. I'm assuming that's why you're doing this. Yes, yes. I would I would like to help them. It was one of my therapists who saw the, the different interventions I was using, and um, they asked me if I could do an in service. Yeah. And so I'm trying to put something together that would be beneficial. So I do like that idea of the case right. study. Right. So four talks. Let's, let's do a quickie review. We only have a few minutes. Yes. Quickie review. Okay. Four small talks. Nine First. minutes each. Nine minutes each. Yes. You make your point. You give examples. And then you make your point. So it goes point, example, point. Mm -hmm. Four times. Little transitions in between to get you from one point to another. Patient walks in. Here's the findings. Step one. Step two. Here's what those findings mean. Step three, here's where we're lacking shape change to allow this movement to occur. Step four, here's an intervention that I can show you will reacquire the internal rotation of the shoulder that caused the positive test in the first place. Talk done. Any questions? So let's look at a few challenges of working with people with narrow ISAs versus wide ISAs. Good morning. Happy. Tuesday, I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, already a busy Tuesday, had a mentorship call this morning, leading into a clinic day, first clinic day after vacation, so that'll be fun. 
Um, today's Q&A is a conversation that I had with, with Eli. Eli's a coach here in Indiana, go, go Indiana. Um, and we talked about a couple of presentations, one with narrow ISAs with the extreme hip intro rotation. So I would refer you to the video that we did on YouTube about that so you get an idea of what you're looking at there. And then we moved into some wide ISA um, questions that I think a lot of people run into. So we have clients with a lot of body mass and that actually becomes some interference to recapturing some movement and shape change that we talk about. And then we actually narrowed it down very specifically to a, to a shoulder issue, again, dealing with somebody that, that, that presents with the wide ISA archetype. So I think that this conversation will be useful to, to many people. So thank you to Eli for your participation. I appreciate you. And um, everybody have a great Tuesday. We will be back tomorrow morning with another Q&A. So have a great day. All right. So um, I have two clients I train mm -hmm. that present with what I believe to be um, second layer compensations. Um, and a few weeks ago, you made a video on the ERIR field of shoulder flexion and hip flexion. Uh -huh. And one of my clients in particular um, is a narrow ISA that presents with uh, quite a bit of internal rotation and limitations in ER. And I guess my question is, is that um, how much does that change the field and what considerations for training her would be um, kind of useful and what things to watch out for? Because I kind of stay away from a lot of things because of this possible limitation. Um, okay. So yeah. Okay. Can I can I stop you so we can we can dig into this? Okay. So when you see when you see somebody that has a lot of internal rotation and a limitation in external rotation, you have a very significant anterior orientation situation. Okay. So the only way under those circumstances, especially with with a narrow ISA, so a narrow ISA should be biased towards external rotation. Right. with limitation and internal rotation. But let me let me get my pelvis and I'll show you. Cool. <clears throat> so what we should see is, so I have a, a, a retroverted acetabulum that would bias me towards external rotation and limit me towards internal rotation. But if I continue to anteriorly orient the, the pelvis forward, I'm gonna switch sides here. If I continue to anteriorly orient this where I can get the acetabulum to face more downward, what it does is it untwists the ligamentous structure of the hip. And now I have this, this really freed up internal rotation situation. Because of the anteriorientation, the muscular that's above the trochanter though, I have the limitation in external rotation. So the first order of business under every circumstance is I gotta bring this pelvis back. I gotta bring the thorax back, right? At the same time. Okay. And what that will do, it'll give me a position where I can start to recapture the relative motions between the bones. Because what you have right now is you have a pelvis that's probably oriented like that and then forward. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So, so now the thing you got to be careful of when you're trying to reorient somebody that, that is a narrow ISA archetype is that if I, if I promote too much muscle activity in that posterior lower area, I'm not gonna see a change. So you gotta be really, really careful with, with the positions that you're gonna start with. Chances are, 
chances are this person also has limited early ER in, in, in all hip motions. So like the hip flexion would be limited, the straight leg raise would be limited, things like that. Um, and so you have to make sure that you're not moving them into a position where they will immediately try to utilize a compensatory strategy because this person will use lumbar flexion, traditional lumbar flexion as the external rotation, right? So okay. you ask somebody to, to, to posteriorly orient their pelvis during an activity in the hopes of recapturing the orientation. What's gonna happen is you're gonna get, you're gonna get that lumbar flexion as a substitution, and then you won't see the changes in the hips like you want. So you're probably gonna to have to go with something that would be more unilateral. And you've probably seen me like talk to death about like cross connect activities and things like that. And that's probably where you're going to go or, or you're going to use some form of a rolling activity with a limited amount of hip flexion. Okay. Does that make that sense? Do, yeah. Do, okay. Yeah. And, and, and again, so, so you've got to think orientation first because you, you're not going to be able to reacquire relative motions in the pelvis or in the thorax without the reorientation first. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and with her, she's she's got a, a bit of a um, uh, kind of a I, I hate this, but kyphotic kind of sway back posture. Um, Absolutely. So 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 she's going to be she's probably going to be close to end game, if not end game. Okay. And so I would refer you to those videos as well. Cool. The because yeah. the, there's I I believe I have a narrow ISA end game video. Yeah. Right. And so severe sometimes, doesn't it? I shouldn't, I should probably change that terminology. It was just made sense. Um, yeah. but yeah, so, so you got to start there though. Right. Gotcha. So she's and getting, so, so if she, if she appears to be kyphotic, so what she is, is she's actually bent, she's bent forward and that's her, actually her inhalation strategy. So what she's going to do is she's going to be pulling down on her sternum and up on her pubis at the same time to create that bend in the back right? Just below the level of the scapula. And that's her inhale strategy. Okay. Okay. So, so again, it's like, number one, you don't want to be driving rectus abdominis when you're trying to reorient the pelvis. And again, that's why a unilateral strategy tends to be more effective under those circumstances. Gotcha. Okay. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've the, got to, and, and, and the reason is, is she doesn't have that ER field to superimpose the IR on. So everything becomes an orientation for her IR. So, so she's driving everything into the ground by orienting it forward. And then her whole center of gravity is way over her foot, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. she's definitely she's uh, definitely tending to be pronating as well, like in her feet and- Yeah, um, she's just jamming into the ground. So, so, so that pronation again is her IR into the ground because she's got to use some form of an orientation to create it because she doesn't have the ER first. You've got to buy her an ER space, then she can IR under normal circumstances with normal relative motions. Okay. You got, a, you got, a, you got a second question? Yeah. Um, so the client I have right after her um, is the, again, I believe a, a second layer uh, or second um, compensatory strategy. And he is a big guy, um, wide ISA, and um, definitely in obese categories. Um, and he- Like big uh, belly kind of thing? Yeah, okay. yeah. And I, I guess my question with this one in particular is um, actually in terms of like obesity and working with clients in that realm, uh, what kind of uh, activities would you choose to 
um, get them to be able to leverage, you know, external obliques to close the ISA, um, or if you can, or if it's more a matter of getting that weight loss. And then I noticed too, when somebody has lost a bunch of weight, that it's still very difficult to get that ISA to close to leverage your abs and hamstrings and things properly. I didn't know if you have any strategies for that as well. So, so you have a space issue under those circumstances. So you have you have an, a magnification of the abdominal contents, and so number one, that's I mean, it, it, we would see the same things that would be associated with with pregnancy in regards to trying to create the dynamics of the ISA, right? Okay. So under those circumstances, what you you're going to have to do to to exercise comfortably first and foremost if, you, if you've got to create expansion where you can create expansion which is going to be more of the the posterior aspect of it right um, so so that will be number one if they can get up and down from the floor you can use the floor to create some some anterior posterior shape change and compress some of the some of the rib cage under those circumstances so again rolling activities become become useful and important in regards to restoring some of the relative motions Okay. But you're you're right as far as okay we have to if there's an obesity situation I have I have uh, adipose that is just taking up space I have to make space it's it the, the rule doesn't change right? right so under certain circumstances we create expansion to create space but if I have something that is occupying space I have to reduce that right and so that's a food issue it's not an exercise issue right. so they need to under, they need to understand that as well. And then it's just a matter of selecting activities that allow you to maintain expansion where you can capture it. So, you know, um, heavy deadlifts, back squats, and things like that, not really going to help you very much because all you're going to do is get more of that posterior compressive strategy that's going to limit what your movement options are going to be. Kind of makes sense, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah, so that, and I, and that's a tough conversation. That's a tough conversation to have with people. You say, "Look, we, we're going to be limited on our ex exercise selection for a while, but here's here's where you double down on on the food thing, right? That's yeah. that's going to be the thing that's most important. A lot of your activities are going are going to be split stance oriented, and they're going to be unilateral in nature because what what you're going to try to do is you're going to try to make as much turning possible as possible." Um, again, within their capabilities, you're not going to drive them, you know, too hard into, into any one thing. And, and then you, you want them to, one, feel the, you know, the, the, uh, the satisfaction of, of the exercises and activities. Right. right? And so, yeah. again, there, there's going to, you're going to need to build some variety in some way, shape or form. But again, it's not about driving them harder and harder and harder into a position. Right. Right, and I kind of, I kind of stumbled my way to this, to this point, um, trying to, trying to figure it out. Um, but it, it was interesting because I had both of these clients occur at the same day, with the same kind of epiphany with it all. Um, I hate to use that word, but um, okay, it happens. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, wow, what are the odds, uh, and of it happening the same day? So, um, but uh, yeah, th those are the main questions I've had. Um, with regards to, to that, so. Cool. Um, what and, else can I do for you? You got a little bit of time. Okay. Um, so uh, what's another question I have? Um, uh, manubrial expansion. 
Um, and I, you posted a video um, again a few weeks back about that. Um, I have a client that has uh, a bit of a down pump handle and also is a secondary uh, compensation um, concavity in the ribs, but a wide ISA. And I'm trying to get her to not be in pain and shoulder flexion. And I, I'm getting, I'm gonna think, go out on a limb and say you're gonna tell me the same thing a minute ago. <laughs> um, but uh, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the the down pump handle is is, is and she's narrow. Uh, she she's wide and she has a, a bit of concavity um, oh, in her. Okay, I see what you're saying. And um and the biggest thing is that she can get to shoulder flexion, but we can't. She is, it seems as, as though she would have full shoulder flexion, but we can't get to where we can load shoulder flexion without, um, um, you know, pec taking over all the motion um, and so biceps pulling on them. So you need to make some space, you need to make some space first. So you gotta, you have to have posterior lower expansion to get through the early shoulder flexion or you're gonna hit IR too soon. Okay. So again, I need to make a space and then I can then I can create internal rotation on top of it. So what happens when you have posterior lower compression, as soon as they start to elevate the arm in what would be considered traditional flexion, they're moving into an IR position. Okay. And then they run out of IR very, very quickly. And now you have a limitation in, in what appears to be shoulder flexion. Right. So you need to have a, a better starting position. So I have to have, have that posterior lower expansion first. Then I will I will transition through internal rotation. Again, it's a gradient. They're both there all the time. Right. But if you start from a position that's biased towards internal rotation, you're going to be losing internal rotation very, very quickly because there's not enough space because I don't have enough ER to create the IR. So if I take ER, if ER is this big, and then I have all the IR in between, if ER is this big, that's all the IR I'm going to have too. Does that make sense? So you've got to create the, you've got to create the AP expansion. So again, this person's going to be kind of a sideline, unilateral activities. Keep them below. You can keep them below shoulder level. Right. There's a lot of things you can do under those circumstances. Right. Gotcha. Create the expansion, and then just use your test retest. Okay. Something simple that doesn't hurt. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. And make yeah, sure no. a little bit, make sure they do a little bit of homework for you. Give them like well, one activity to do at home and say, you know what? I need you to do this every day. So they're so them, like a, like a kind of an arm bar, something like that. Something, I, I don't know if I do anything loaded with them at home. I think you, you can do like a rolling activity at home. I think that's very reasonable. But again, it's like let's 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 take some of the load out of it so they can just work on on the movement, the orientation, the let the floor do some of the work for them, right? So so you get some of the like as soon as you roll to your side, you're going to get anterior posterior expansion. Okay, right? gotcha. Let, let let that do some of the work for you, but doing it consistently. So that they're reinforcing what you're capturing while they're working out. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that's great. All right, man. Awesome. Thank you so much. So let's look at some exercise selection ideas for someone with a pelvis that's on a right oblique orientation. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay. It's Wednesday. 
That means that tomorrow's Thursday, which means that the Coffee and Coaches Conference call is back after a one-week hiatus. So I'm looking forward to, to getting back on those and seeing all those fine people at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 a.m. on Thursday. Uh, the link will be on my professional Facebook page if you're interested in joining us. Um, I'm really digging the 15-minute the consult videos that, I, that I'm doing. I'm having a great time meeting some really good people, and it's much more fun to answer these questions in real time with them rather than going through through email. Um, so be prepared. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to continue this for a while uh, because, like I said, I'm having a good time. Um, so today's Q&A is with Gerardo, and I got to talk to Gerardo over the weekend. Gerardo's a, a coach in Miami, and he had some, some right-sided back issues that we were discussing and he does a really great job of describing I mean, this is tremendous self-awareness on his part he's doing a great job of describing what's going on and so it's very obvious that that he's on a on a right oblique orientation and so what i want to do is we'll cut away we'll go through the call it's very short um because he, he he really got to the point, and so we got some really good answers. But I'm going to expand on this. We're gonna we're gonna talk about a little bit more exercise selection for him. So Gerardo, I hope you're watching, because um, there's some other stuff that that we didn't talk about on the call that I think is going to be useful for you. So let's go to the call, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the the exercises that you may want to continue with. Yes, you have followers from Miami all the way down to South America. So huh. you're. <laughs> I'm, I'm translating as much as I can to Spanish, but we're doing good. Okay. All right. I no no hablo no hablo español. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> but you eat but you eat Mexican food, so that's good. That's, that's good. <laughs> yes. Every Thursday. Every Thursday. So there you go. Okay. What's your question, my friend? So I'm a personal trainer. I've been I started listening to you through Pat, Dr. Pat in New York. Um, uh, the idea of uh, compression and expansion is new to me, but I'm going to try to explain it as fast as I can. It's, I have a right tilt and a back pain on my right side, on my right side of my ilium. Do you hear me? Yes, sir. So it, it, I've always been tilted to my right and I've been, you know, kettlebell carries on my right. Yep. Um, I've, I've been doing, you know, trying to understand what I need to do with my foot, but I don't have as much dorsiflexion on my right side as I do on my left side. Correct. I don't have, I don't have as much, um, hamstring, I guess, I, a leg extension on my right, on my right side. And I do have it on my left side more. Yeah. Um, I, I did suffer some pain on my left adductor okay. and then on my right side, I cannot. I cannot yield back as much as I can on my left side. So I've had this tilt for better. Okay. okay. Yeah. You know? can, can I stop you for a sec? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So so chances are you're not actually yielding on the left side. Okay. All right. Um, and the the side bend that you're talking about is an attempt to reacquire internal rotation downward into the ground. So that's what, so your foot is your right foot is supinated, correct? It's more supinated because you can't dorsiflex. Yeah, my right foot actually opens when I squat. Like yes, it. there, there you go. Okay, yeah. So, so you're trying to find you're trying to find range of motion. So that that is an orientation into external rotation, but your side bend is is actually um, going to be 
you trying to find the internal rotations to produce force into the ground. So what you do is you create the external rotation position. So you're going for, for, for an, an area or a space where you do have access to external rotation. So you can superimpose the internal rotation on top of it. But when you're walking, your, your, your right side bend is the internal rotation. That's how you're getting force into the ground, okay? So, so chances are you've got a, a pelvis that is, that is tipped over to the, to the right on an oblique axis and pushed way forward, all right? Yeah, so my right oblique is, is higher in this case. Like my ribs are going down and my hip is coming up. Well, it's, it's tipped up like this. So if this is straight, it's up and over like that, okay? So this is how you get into rotation. So you, you, you push into rotation downward in this direction. Okay. Right. Okay. So, um, so you need to be able to push yourself back and to the left. So you're going to do right leg or right foot leading activities that, that will push you back and to the left. So the cable left hand hold in front of me, into a deep squat with a right foot forward. That kind okay. of activity, yes, exactly. So what you're gonna feel, you're gonna feel the resistance through your right foot. So that's gonna bring your right foot down to the ground and allow right. you to push back and to the left. Right. So, so you've been doing activities to create the yielding action on the left side but, right. but you have to be able to push yourself back into that. So it's a right leg lead. So you're going to hang on to the internal rotation on the left side that you can probably acquire, but you got to push right. back in to the left from the right side. So it's a yeah. right side, it's a right side forward type of an activity, whether that be upper extremity or lower extremity, it's going to be a right side forward to push you back into the left. Is that why I get a spasm sometimes? that will just lock me up to the right for a week. Well, again, right. so, so anytime, anytime you feel what you would perceive as that side bend to the right, that's internal rotation. That's, that's an attempt to acquire internal rotation because you don't have access to it at, at the hip joint where you would probably want it. So you have right. to acquire it somewhere else. So you have to, you have to create a downward force under those circumstances. All right. And, th and those injuries that happen where my body would just like feel something on that right side. And then over the course of the day, it'll just lock me up to the right, give me a lot of pain on my back, lower back, right side. And it won't allow me to like let go of the muscle. Like the muscles just contracted. Is that normal? Well, I mean, obviously it's not normal because it doesn't feel good and it becomes a limitation, but right. as far as what you're experiencing under those circumstances and why you may feel it, I mean, that's just a, a typical response to a loss of, of adaptability, right? So okay. you're going to put pressure, you're creating pressure and tension to accomplish a goal. And unfortunately it reduces your adaptability to such a degree that that load and tension now becomes painful. Right. Okay. So I mean, I that's it. normal. It's a normal circumstance, right? Right. It's, it's due to the limited adaptability that you do have. So the activities that you're going to want to choose are the ones that restore your ability to be more adaptable. So you're a big, strong guy, which means that you've got a lot of concentric muscle activity. It means that you've got a lot of compressive capabilities. So you can pick up heavy things. 
right? But eventually you have to give something up in, in return to be able to do those things. Okay, and then final question is, it, when I go into that deep squat, left hand hold, um, I was playing with it and I was also at some point like concentrically as I came up, um, bring up a kettlebell with my right side. Is that overdoing it? Maybe. It seems like you're adding some complexity that you may not need. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to try to focus on breathing, holding that arm on that side. And yeah. I would, I would, like I said, start there, but, but, but make sure you're doing enough right side leading activities. And, and again, always with the, with the, with the sense that, that you're, you're turning, you're turning left with that right side lead. So when you talk about being in a deep squat with your left arm, with the cable forward, you're going to turn into that left side. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You want to think about making space on that, that, that left posterior aspect, because then you know that you're pushing back and making the turn that you, that you need. Okay. Perfect. Thank Can you. Bill. you? I appreciate your time. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. That's all I need to know. You're very welcome. Thank you. Sir. All right, so let's go through some of the clues that Gerardo gave us because he did, he did a really good job of laying this out as to why we think that he's on this, this right oblique axis. So, so let me grab um, the pelvis and then we'll talk a little bit about the foot as well. And so, so right off the bat, he kind of mentioned that he had this, this right side bend thing going. And the, the obvious place that you're gonna see this is, is through the, the trunk or through the rib cage. And what this typically is, is somebody that's looking for a way to get force down into the ground. We know that force down into the ground is internal rotation. So, so that's step one, which means that we know that he's getting pushed over um, to the right side in some way, shape or form. He also mentioned reduced dorsiflexion. So this would be a typical reaction to somebody that's getting pushed on this oblique axis. So typically what they're gonna show first is they're gonna show an, an early propulsive foot strategy. And so for those of you that have been living in the dark, that what we're gonna see is we're gonna see an ER tibia, we're gonna see an arch in the foot, the first metatarsal head's gonna be on the ground, so we're gonna see a foot that looks like that. Now, something else that he mentioned as we were going through this discussion is that he toes out when, when he squats. So what that is, is someone that's trying to make some external rotation space so that they can then apply force into the ground in internal rotation. So I have to have ER first to superimpose my, my IR. So, so he's actually towing out with, with this foot. And so in this case, what that would tell us is that he may have started with this early propulsive foot, but now he's getting he's still getting pushed forward and over over the right foot. And what that's gonna do, it's gonna move him into this middle propulsive strategy. So the arch is gonna probably start to go down. So he's gonna have to compensate by turning the foot outward to create the external rotation because we've got a loss of external rotation in the right oblique axis to begin with. Um, he also mentioned that he had a reduced straight leg raise. So again, this tells us that he's pushed even farther forward. So what he's doing, he's picking up some concentric activity even lower in the pelvis on the right side, which is going to reduce um, that, that straight leg raise on the right. He mentioned left adductor pain. This is really, really common. So when I get pushed over to the right, I'm gonna pick up concentric orientation in, in the right adductors, I'll get eccentrically oriented in the left adductors, and so I can get a strain type of sensation there. And then he mentioned limited yielding um, on, on this right side. So if I get a compressive strategy, so it'll be just 
through this middle portion of the of the sacrum it's going to get pushed forward and that's going to drive me up and over the top of this right leg and so again typically what i'm going to see is i'm going to see a, a, a gain of internal rotation on this right side and the loss of external rotation but if i keep getting pushed further forward i'm going to pick up some concentric orientation on this right side and so again this this shows us the limitations that gerardo is is um, talking about now he's already started on, on a really good activity um, th that i like which is a, a, it's an offset squat variation um, with with a low cable um, where he's actually reaching forward with the left side and what he's doing he's actually creating um, the the yielding action on the left side and then he's creating the overcoming action on the right side so he's moving into a later propulsive strategy on the right side and an early propulsive strategy on on the left side so i love that but something that we didn't talk about on the call that i, that I want to make make clear is that you may need to initiate some some static positions and some rolling activities at first to create this this delay on the left and the the uh, advancement on the right and so again left rolling activity so we might start you statically on your on your left side to start to move the the sacrum from this this right oriented position so so if i put you on your left side and we do some of the static activities that's going to start to bring you back to this middle ground and then we can turn it into a roll and turn it in the other direction so so gerardo again i hope you're watching um you might need to do do some of this uh the sideline stuff and rolling stuff as some of your movement prep um, before you start to train once you do that now we've got a lot of stuff on the table. So, so um, I really like the, the left half kneeling static activities um, to start to, to promote this, again, capturing this middle ground so we can start to produce this turn once you're able to produce this overcoming action on the, on the right side and get you into a later propulsive strategy um, on the right side. So um, just like the uh, offset squat with the, the left cable reach, we can put you in left half kneeling and, and do a left arm reach, but we're gonna have to maintain that yielding action on that posterior left side. And so again, there's a, there should be a video here that's, that's showing you uh, what I'm talking about there. Once you do that kind of a thing, now we can turn this into a dynamic split squat where we've got the right, the right foot lead like we were talking about on the video. You might wanna use an offset load. So I would put that on the, the uh, with the right leg lead, I'm gonna put that on the ipsilateral side. So it's gonna be a right side loaded right foot forward split squat activity and once you capture enough hip range of motion now we've got uh heels elevated camperini deadlift is now on the on the table to get that sacrum to turn and actually capture that that yielding action um, through the pelvis so gerardo thank you so much um, for the call truly appreciate you everybody have a terrific wednesday i will see you tomorrow morning on the coffee and coaches conference call at 6 a.m have a great day Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. We are back after a one week hiatus. But being that humans don't, uh, don't know that, <laughs> give me that look. Being that humans don't know what we don't know. What are your safety mechanisms to ensure that your inadvertent biases don't defend your motto against its own evolution. So I actually posted a video about this, I believe oh. quite a while back. Um, uh -huh. Somebody asked me a similar question and, mm -hmm. and 
I am, I am the interference mm. to everything that I do. So I, I'm at mm-hmm. least I'm aware of that, but being human, mm-hmm. I'm going to be fallible. I see. Um, so, so that helps right off the bat. Mm-hmm. One of the, and, and um, anybody that, that I've talked to on a, on a, you know, long duration kind of a situation, whether it be mentorship or whether it be friends or colleagues or whatever, they know that they know that, that I, and I will state this frequently is that my greatest concern is that my bias is way too strong. Mm-hmm. And so, so the thing that I try to do on a regular basis is um, one, I, I don't consume content. I look for sources. Um, that would be in conflict because when, when you start to, to feel confident about something and, and your lens kind of gets a little bit too narrow, it's too easy to fit everything into the existing story. Mm-hmm. And so you, part of the time that you spend um, consuming information and I, you know, not not content, not other people's content, but information like like original source stuff, is is to see what else is available, so you can make the comparison between what you think you know and then what has been expressed. Okay, and then the the ultimate. Uh, representation of what is, is, is your experience as you interact with other people, as you apply. And that's going to be the best answer as to whether you're on the right path or not. Cause I mean, as it's so easy, even for me to feel like you, like I have something right. And it feels yeah. good all the time. Right. Like okay. I put it together. Okay. I'm going to give everybody a, 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 a book. Hang on. Uh, oh, on being certain. There you go. It's by um, uh, Robert Burton. Yeah. It's a really good book. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, so, yeah. So that's, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's like, that's one of those places where your, your confidence kind of comes from. It's like this feeling, but um, I, I encourage everyone to challenge it whenever you can. Cause like I said, it, the, the thing that we do is nobody likes to be wrong. It's uncomfortable to be wrong, but it's important to, to be wrong sometimes um, safely, safely be wrong, right? Don't, don't compromise someone else's safety or your own. So anyway, it's like, it's like awareness, awareness has a lot to do with it, Jordan. I think that the, the more aware you are, um, and, and to never get so confident, to not let your ego go unchecked. Ego is a very powerful tool. It's a very mm-hmm. useful tool. It allows you to do many great things, but left unchecked leads to arrogance. And then that's dangerous. Basically, the difference between the implicit knowledge that you have versus what you're showing everyone else, like, and then what you're also showing yourself, what you write down. Because if it didn't click initially, you probably wouldn't have... Um, brought it on board, like included it in the model. So is right. That- so everything. So so everything is sort of road tested, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, my thought on that was, you're sharing this to for everyone else to call BS on what you're seeing. Yep. It's, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, talk about the best check and balance system in the whole world, right? Hang your ass out there, <laughs> and then have people tell you that you're FOS, right? Yeah. 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 So. 
So it's part of it, right? Well, you think I do this for my own good? Right. <laughs> um, no, it's, it, it's like you, you can't, you, you, it's, it, it is the best, best filtering system is, is to offer things up, have other people test it for you and then come back and say, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Because there's questions that I cannot ask myself. Like I wouldn't even fathom some of the questions that I get, they get asked, but they become so useful because they, they, they offer me an opportunity to clarify it in my own head. And then I can, I can be even more clear when I'm expressing it to someone else, because the, the, the greatest challenge that you have, especially in this type of an industry is, is expressing the tacit information. So, because you can't, right. That that's, that's why it's tacit information. So anything that you read or, or hear or see on, on the internet is explicit information, which means that it can be expressed. The tacit is an experiential level of, of information and understanding. That's the hardest thing to, to, to pass on because it's, it's, so you were an, you were an intern. It's like, so, so what you gained by being an intern was the tacit element, the experiential element. Cause we can talk to you every day about this is what a split squat is supposed to look like. And until you do it and until you see it, until you coach it, until you screw it up a million times, you don't really understand it. Right. And, and so um, as I get better at expressing things and people are, are utilizing this information and then the information comes back. So they're offering me, like I said, a better way to express myself. You once referred to the, what is it, the vastus medialis as a knee external rotator. Yes, sir. And I was wondering how that works. I just never thought of it that way. You know, like I think in the same sentence you say, you know, most people think of the quads as just knee extensors. Yeah. So, yeah. So <clears throat> stick the foot to the ground first and foremost. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And now you, what you also need to understand is, okay, where does, does the, the VM attach to the femur? Okay. Mm -hmm. And then where does it attach to the tibia? Mm -hmm. Which it kind of doesn't just for the record. There's it. Vastus medialis, I think is a grossly understood muscle. It's actually not one muscle. It's, it's probably a minimum of three, but, but point being is based on where the attachment sites are, based on the direction of the pull that's created. So do you have an anatomy app, Manuel? I do not. Okay. So here's what I would do is oh. either either you, you got to have a book that shows the, the vastus medialis in isolation. Um, mm -hmm. But anatomy apps do it really well because you can literally select out one muscle and see how it's attached to the to its bony attachments. If you look at if you look at VM the way it's attached to the femur, and then you follow the attachment um, where the the VM attaches to the the quad tendon and the patella, and then that attaches to the tibia, you will see that if I anchor the foot to the ground and that muscle contracts, it actually twists the the femur into ER. From the, from, from, from the knee up, okay? It'll turn it from the knee up. And it turns it outward, which is external rotation. And if you wanna get really in depth, the VL would be the opposing um, muscle. It would turn it inward. Cool. 
Yeah, and that, that and that doesn't happen independently, right? Like it happens in con- in coordination with the rest of the quads, right? There's no way you, you hope you hope so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Paul. You get you, you win the last question of the day. Uh, it's about your archetypes. Can you just maybe list some of the archetypes in your minds that guide your thought processes? I have two. Okay. There's two extremes. Okay. You have one that's biased towards expansion. You have one that's biased towards compression because those are the only two strategies that exist. Okay. So the wide ISA archetype is, is someone that is biased towards a compressive strategy by structure. The narrow ISA archetype is someone that is biased towards an inhalation biased uh, strategy because of their physical structure. Because the goal is to maintain position against gravity, right? So there's only two ways I can do it. I can squeeze myself, right? And I can compress it and I make myself rigid. And so anything that tries to push me down, I push back against because I'm rigid. Or I'm the wacky wavy tube guy and I fill up with air and then that holds me up. So then the structure determines the strategy because that's the constraint. It tells me what you're capable of, right? And so you'll just be biased in that direction. Doesn't mean you can't do both. Doesn't mean that, that it doesn't mean that, that uh, wide ISAs never expand. It's just that they're not as good at it as other people. And then you, again, I have to speak from my experience because um, I see the extremes. I get to see them, right? I don't see average people Average people don't have problems because they don't do things. They're not good at anything. They're kind of okay at a lot of stuff, right? And I will tell my average story. So they live average lives. They marry an average spouse. They have two average kids. They live in an average neighborhood. They have an average house. They live to be 78 to 82 years old. They live an average life and they're very, very happy that way. But they never, they don't get hurt. They don't perform well because they're just average. So one thing that's a little confusing is when you say somebody who's got a wide ISA is a compressed individual because yes. it makes me think wide ISA makes me think of a blown up individual wide. Like that's, so that's their compensation so let's go back to Grace's question. Grace could probably answer this question if she, yeah, she could probably do it now, right? Because we just talked about it. So if I have somebody that is biased towards a compressive strategy, they will have to find a way to breathe in against that strategy at some point in time. And so that that is the first compensatory strategy is to try to pull the diaphragm down against the resistance. And that's what holds the ISA open wide. So let's talk post-surgical shoulders and kyphosis. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. We made it to Friday. First week after vacation, always tough. Lots to catch up on. So we got to dig right into today's Q&A. I had a chance to talk to Rachel yesterday. Um, We got actually got two questions 
um, from Rachel, which is kind of cool. So we got a post-surgical situation um, in regards to recovering some shoulder range of motion. And then um, what is perceived to be a kyphotic situation that is influencing some neck pain. So, so this is actually a really good, really good representation of, of the coherence of, of the application of the model because the post-surgical situation doesn't really change the rules. We certainly have some protective phases that we have to address in the post-surgical situations, but we still apply the model the same way from, from measurement to, to the implementation and, and intervening. So, so this was a really good conversation with Rachel. She's, she's actually really on point. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the results are um, after our conversation. So um, again, post-surgical shoulder, recapturing range of motion, talking a little bit about kyphosis and how that influences neck pain. Um, the podcast will be up on Sunday, so be looking for that. And you guys have a great weekend, and I'll see you next And we are on. So, Rachel, what is your question? How can I help you? Um, I have a patient that's been a little bit challenging. She originally came to me post-op uh, slap repair on oh, nice. the right side. Um, she's about six weeks post-op now. Um, but for the past two years prior to the slap repair, she's had a lot of neck pain, like almost debilitating neck pain to where she had to, um, stop bodybuilding training, stop a lot of activity. Um, and the surgeon prioritized the slap tear at the time she went through with the surgery. And now that we're six weeks and we're kind of getting into that, uh, more, we can start rotator cuff strengthening and getting into a little bit more active range of motion. I find that neck pain to be the most limiting factor for her. I mean, shoulders progressing great. Um, but now that we're able to get into more, um, it seems a little bit more like first rib involvement. I've done a lot of whatever she can tolerate, but she has been brought to tears um, with even like gentle, gentle pressure. Um, I do a lot of breath work to help bring everything down with her, a lot of breathing, a lot of relaxation. Um, I've done some nerve glide. She responded well to that as well as with the breathing work. I got two days of no neck pain <laughs> after that. Okay, well, that's um, but I would just like some advice on kind of yeah. how to get everything under control so I can really progress her through this protocol and get her back. Okay, so so let's talk about some some deficits. What are we still looking at from a deficit perspective with her? Um, your tr uh, traditional shoulder flexion seems to be probably the most painful for her, especially as we get into more active shoulder flexion. Okay, um, where. Where in the range does she experience the first um, element of, of discomfort? I would say actively 90 degrees, passively about 120 to 130. Okay. Um, now, so we got, we got to be really, really particular here. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I'm, I'm, so she's got a, a strength training background, correct? Yes. Okay. And I'm assuming a rather aggressive one then? Yes. Yeah. She was doing a more aggressive, like bodybuilding program. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions here, but have you done any hip measures on her by any chance? I have, um, cause she has a history of knee surgery on the same side. So I checked range of motion. Hip seems to actually be in, have really good mobility. Internal rotation was a little bit limited. Um, yes, okay. I know I was going to say <laughs> Okay. I to be right. so, and I was like, so now we're 
Okay, now we get, okay. So this is important. This is gonna be yeah. really, really important. Okay, so she's running out of internal rotation. She's running out of it very, very quickly because chances are, chances are you've got a, you've got a compressive strategy posterior that's gonna be the limit, limiting factor. So when she tries to move actively, right? Um, uh, chances are she's not moving away from the motion. So when you check her passively with, with shoulder flexion, um, number one, if you're not controlling at the elbow, then she can create some rotation through the humerus and, and forearm that will substitute for some of the rotation that she's missing. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if she's got any posterior compression below the level of the scapula on the affected side, what's going to happen is she's going to run out of the, the early phase of shoulder flexion very, very quickly. She's going to hit internal rotation, upward rotation of the scapula is actually already occurring. So that's why she'll top out at 90 degrees actively most likely. Yeah. So, so she's going to, she's going to present with what we would call um, clinically impingement, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we got to get expansion in the posterior lower aspect of that thorax first. Okay. okay? Otherwise, like I said, she hits internal rotation very, very quickly because external rotation is in this early phase of, of arm elevation, mm -hmm. but because of the compressive strategy, it's out here. That's where external rotation really is. So if she's, if you're testing her through this range, she's already internally rotated. Okay. So again, posterior lower expansion in the posterior rib cage is going to get you that early phase of flexion back. And that's immediately going to extend probably where you can get her through that middle range of, of overhead reach. Yeah, it could explain why I get more in the scapular plane versus that kind always, of traditional. Always. Plane, well, because right? Cause that's where extra rotation is. Yeah, right? I'm trying so, to get over here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So have you heard me talk about how you need this exp this expansion of extra rotation to superimpose yeah. the internal on? So she doesn't have extra rotation in the traditional um, imaginary sagittal plane, right? So yeah. she can't go through here. She just doesn't have it. You move her out here. It looks great. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we want it over here, right? Yeah. So you're, like gonna, you're gonna have to get the yeah, you gotta get the <laughs> early post early um, posterior lower expansion. Okay. And so there's there's any number of ways to do that, depending on what what her capabilities are. So you're not really in this this hardcore active phase yet. Mm -hmm. So what you probably want to do is you're probably just gonna maybe work from sideline to try to capture that. That'll mm -hmm. probably be the easiest place to do it. Um, because again, it'll allow it to it to you can you can work even sort of like a like a partial rolling activity. So it's a, a right side's the affected side, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So so you put her in left side lying, and you can work some some of the like like literally taking her through an excursion of of just partial rolls where she's going to create the expansion as she rolls in one direction, she'll create the compression in the other, and you just take her back and forth that way. Um, you could probably drive some, even some, uh, are you familiar with like scapular PNF patterns and things like yes, that? Yeah, I've been trying to go through that PNF. Okay. Yeah. But don't forget about the pelvis because we, we know that she's got the deficit in the pelvis as well. So the pelvis and the thorax are going to behave very similarly. So if she doesn't get expansion in the pelvis, good luck trying to get it in the thorax, not going to happen. So, so um, some of the measures that you're going to want to pay attention to then are your ER measures in the, on the same side hip. So if you put her in left sideline and you check hip abduction, you've got a limitation there, or you can't even get her into 
the appropriate position for the measurement, you got some issues there that you have to address. Otherwise, you're not going to get them in the shoulder. This is one of the reasons why we, you know, we run into to, uh, pickles with these post-surgical patients because people look at the, you know, they, they sort of zero in on the area that was affected, not recognizing the fact that the whole axial skeleton is an influence here, right? Yeah. Make sure you're not, you're not neglecting the lowers. Okay. It'll help you every time. It will help you every time. And at least I can have something to do with her that's not breaking protocol and not kind of putting her at risk of her body weight. So you've got, hang on, think about this. So if so, you're still in the protective phase of this right shoulder, but you've got a left extremity, you've got two lower extremities and the rest of the axial skeleton and her neck, because we know that we've got an influence there as well. All right. So when you think about end range shoulder flexion, so here's what we, here's what we need there. We need the, the upper uh, thoracic spine and the lower cervical spine to be able to turn towards the same direction. So if you're checking traditional shoulder flexion in the imaginary sagittal plane, you better have a neck that can turn that way because if you don't, there's there's no way that she's ever going to get the, the end ranges comfortable. Yeah, she cannot turn to that direction. And a lot of it's like pain limiting and like- Yeah, okay. okay. So, so there's a lot of stuff to do here, okay? Yeah. And so as you're working scapular PNF activities, what I would do is I would look at it from the perspective of I'm trying to turn that lower cervical spine. So you're trying to create dorsal rostral expansion when you're doing the scapular PNFs because that's gonna to start to turn the lower cervical spine in the same direction. And this is all kinder, gentler stuff. So, so you superimpose your breath work on top of the scapular PNFs and then eventually she can sort of take that out of your hands and then she can start to reproduce it. And now you've restored the active cervical strategy that she's going to need to be able to reach up overhead. So yeah. there is so much you can do with these post-surgical patients that, that are, are within the, the surgical restriction, right? That people just don't appreciate. It's like, you just got to look at all of these segments and how they influence the outcome of the affected joint motion. Right. Okay, it all works to get it all, you know, this. it all works together. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Because that, you just feel so stuck post-op sometimes. And it's yeah. almost like sometimes when you're with the patient, it's like almost overwhelming. And, yeah. and especially when they're emotional, like she'll get so emotional and frustrated with where she's at, that I'm just trying to do a lot of gentle things. And yeah. so, so you can give her more things to do. So she sounds like a kind of like the go-getter, you know, type of yeah. hardcore trainer. It's like, give her more things to do. Help her to recognize the fact that, hey, you know what? I need you to drive this left side. So, so think about this. So if you can't do active things on the, on the right side to drive this dorsal rostral expansion or the posterior lower expansion, but if I create a compressive strategy on the back left side, yeah, I get expansion on the side that I'm trying to get it in the first place. Yeah. So don't forget about the influence of the of the left side mechanics affecting the right side of the axial skeleton. Huge, yeah. huge, right? Take every opportunity to 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 create the the orientations and the muscle activity on the other side. That's the, like I said, tremendous value in that. Okay. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff. You got a lot of stuff you can do here. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Don't like just don't don't let your 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 um, uh, protocols interfere with your ability to be creative in the clinic. Cause there's, like I said, there's so much you can do. You don't have to drive that shoulder to create the expansions that you want. Yeah. Right? It'll come. It'll come. Yay. Thank what you else so can I answer for you? 
Um, I actually quickly have another cervical patient, much older. Um, she is hyperkyphosis and in the thoracic region, increased lordosis cervical wise. Um, same thing, having lots of like debilitating neck pain, um, but she's that different situation where she's just like so expanded in the back. Um, she's also, all of her pain is on the right side and um, little history. She also had a bilateral mastectomy. Okay. And How she long had complications ago? on the right side. How long ago? Um, five years ago. Okay. When you say complications, was it like lymphedema or something like that? Or was it something? Uh, like, did she have radiation? She did have radiation. Okay. Yeah. She has like a soft tissue scarring. That's just, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so, so this is a toughie because you've got, you've got scarring that's going to create a, a limitation in the ability to expand and, and expansion yeah. is where you're going to capture range of motion. Now it doesn't change the rules as to, to how you're going to approach this. It just gonna, it's just going to change the constraints and then it might impose some limit on, on the amount of change that you can make, but the rules are the same. So just like we were talking about, about the, the female with the shoulder, with this, with the post-surgical, you, you, you're still going to try to drive expansion. Now, let me, let me talk to you about, about this, this kyphosis thing under most circumstances, what you're actually looking at is a compressed upper thorax. And so it might look rounded, but what it is, is she's bending herself forward because she's trying to create a space to get air in, in the upper thorax. So the upper thorax is actually kind of flattened. And then, especially when you see the lordosis that, that it looks like it goes from the sacrum all the way up into the middle thorax, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so what she has is she has a bend in the, in the thoracic spine that'll, that'll probably have the apex really close to the inferior angle of the scapula because she's compressing the scaps against the upper thorax. Right. And so she creates that little bit of space. So she pulls her sternum down in the front mm -hmm. okay, and she creates a little bit of space in that posterior aspect of the thorax. And that's actually your inhalation strategy. Okay. So you're still going to try to drive dorsal rostral expansion, and you're going to try to drive up pump handle. So you're, so the amount of manual work on the rib cage is now going to come in really, really handy. Okay. okay. So you can use upper extremity positions to help create some of the expansion. So you think about like an overhead reach and, and if you can think about a scapular position and how pec minor would attach to the, to the rib cage. So you've got ribs three, four, and five that pec minors attached to. So if I can, if I can move the scapula um, into that, that what would traditionally be considered like a posterior tilted yeah. kind of a, kind of a position, it's yeah. going to help pull those upper ribs up, which is going to bring the pump handle with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's going to get me some of the anterior expansion that I needed to bring her up out of this, this pulled down position. Then I drive traditional dorsal rostral stuff. So have you seen some of the dorsal rostral? Yeah. I use that all the time. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that money? I just love that. Yes, exercise. I do. It works. Yeah. Wonders. Oh. It's great. It's great. Mm -hmm. Don't forget that on your, on your uh, post-surgical patient too, when it, when it, when the time comes, but, but so, so again, so, so I need to make a little bit of room. I need to be able to get her into a better position so she can execute the other activities. So again, let's, let's think about bringing that pump handle up, try to reduce some of the rectus abdominis that she's using on the front side too. So again, some of your rib cage work. And then again, if you're superimposing the breathing, like you said, you were on the, on the previous patient, you got to start to drive that too. Cause that's the only way that you're going to create the, the expansion from the inside out. 
So I, so, I, so I think you just kind of have to reverse gears on, on the superficial strategies that she's using. So again, reduce the rectus abdominis that she's using. Again, it's an inhale strategy. So what you're going to look for is get her into a comfortable position and then teach her how to um, capture this non-compensatory inhalation right? So you support her head as high as you need to off the table. You teach her how to reorient the pelvis. So again, we're going to use the pelvis to drive mechanics upward. So don't try to force things in the upper thorax to move. Let's encourage them to move and then use the extremities to drive areas of expansion through the rib cage. Okay. Right. Yeah. So again, your PNF patterns come into play again, because that that's going to help us drive that superficial musculature and allow you to create the expansion where you need it. Okay. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think I just got so distracted by that, that hyperkyphosis that it's almost like you don't think of it as a compressive. So I don't even call it a kyphosis anymore because yeah. I think, I think I, I, I don't like the term because it's vague. Um, somewhere on my, on my uh, uh, Instagram, mm -hmm. there is a, a thing called the Terry project. Oh, I was looking for that because yes. I thought so this is this is the scenario. This is the scenario that that you're actually looking at. Yeah. Okay. okay. And 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 so so what we did with Terry, it's like Terry came in and he and he actually got taller during treatment, which was really really cool because he had a, he had a physical and he and he says I'm an inch and a half taller than I was last year. How's that even possible? Yeah. Because we brought him up, but what he had done was was a bunch of scapular uh, muscle exercises in an effort to actually fix his posture. And what it did is it created the compression that drove him downward, right? Yeah. So we, we, again, we just had to reverse gear. So we did a lot of rib cage mo mobilization. We did a lot of breathing to, to start to create the anterior expansion, which allowed him the capacity to release this anterior superficial musculature yeah. um, and, and allowed him to, to become more upright. And then we worked the dorsal rostral expansion. Okay. Thank you. You're awesome. very welcome. You're very Thank welcome. Thank you so much. Right. Let me know wonderful. how it goes with your, with your people, okay? Thank you so much. It was right. nice You're to very you. welcome. Have a great day. You